Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, welcome to All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and today our wonderful guest is Melon Sully, Associate Digital Editor of History at Smithsonian Magazine. And today we are going to talk about Mary Queen of Scots and illicit love. What a great combination. So what an intriguing concept, Milan. Um, thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Could you just provide an overview of Mary Queen of Scots' love life for us? Yeah. So Mary had quite a dramatic love life in that she married three times before the age of 24. So her first husband was Francis, the Dauphin of France. They wed in 1558 when she was 15 and he was 14. Uh, This was essentially a diplomatic match made to secure an alliance between France and Scotland. And accounts, you know, suggest that it was a fairly happy um, pairing in that Mary had grown up in the French court and was well acquainted with Francis and his family. Um, Unfortunately, it was going to be quite a short relationship in that just over a year after the wedding, Francis's father, Henry II, died unexpectedly after getting injured in a jousting match. And so Mary and Francis ascended to the French throne. And then the following year, actually, um, Francis dies at the age of 16, leaving Mary a widow. And so she returns to Scotland in August 1561. And she's very much this Catholic queen in a Protestant country. And she's more French than Scottish, I would say, due to spending, you know, her formative years in France. And so she spends the next few years consolidating her reign and trying to assert control over her court, which is full of these warring factions and nobles, as well as to, you know, forge a relationship with her cousin, Elizabeth I, who had ascended to the throne of England in 1558. And so, you know, this was sort of her main focus, her first few years in Scotland, securing her reign. Um, But when she does decide to marry, it comes with a host of its own problems. You know, um, I think that's something that we'll discuss later, but marrying as a reigning queen um, was a really difficult task because you had to balance finding either a foreign husband or someone who was your own subject. um, And those came with their own complications. So in the spring of 1565, after almost five years of widowhood, Mary falls madly in love with her cousin, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. She was 22, he was 19, and she described him as the lustiest and best proportioned long man that she had seen. Um, So it was very much a match, you know, born out of physical attraction. Uh, So Darnley was a great grandchild of Henry VII through his daughter, Margaret, and actually so was Mary. They shared Margaret as a grandmother. So he actually had his own claim to the English throne. Um, Mary did as well. And so when they got married, it was very much against Elizabeth's wishes because, you know, by having two people with claims to the English throne um, getting married, it, you know, was sort of, she viewed it as a threat to her reign and her position. Uh, So unfortunately, Darnley turned out to be quite 
a poor match for Mary. He was very immature. He'd been spoiled by his mother, Margaret Douglas, um, as a child. And so I think on the surface, he was very attractive to Mary in terms of, you know, she thought that he would be a great consort. He was interested in hunting and hawking and, um, you know, came off as this kind of cultured courtier. But as, you know, she realized in in between, you know, when she fell in love with him, uh, they got married. And then after their marriage, he was very hedonistic, vain, arrogant, and just kind of all around unsuitable for the position that he'd um, he'd gotten. And so Darnley also showed a very, you know, kind of lust for power, which was interesting because he had no interest in the business of governing, but he very much wanted, you know, this power. And so their relationship is deteriorating because Mary refuses to give Darnley the crown matrimonial, which is sort of um, the status that would mean if Mary died without an heir, then Darnley would um, rule as king on his own. And so this actually all culminates in the murder of Mary's secretary, David Rizzio, in March 1566. It's a you know a really horrific incident. The the queen is you know six months pregnant with her future um, the son, the future James VI of Scotland and first of England. And Darnley and um, some other Scottish nobles burst into the room. Um, you know, they tear Rizzio from Mary's side and they stab him upward of 50 times. And so in the aftermath of this event, their relationship, I'd say Mary and Darnley's relationship, never fully recovers. And so Mary starts seeking ways to end the marriage without compromising her son's legitimacy, you know, by having a sort of straightforward divorce as much as, you know, divorce could have been straightforward in those days. And so then, you know, Darnley himself actually dies under very suspicious circumstances the following year in 1567. Um, and Mary's final husband is actually the man who was accused of killing Darnley. And his, his name was James Hepburn, Lord Bothwell. Uh, he was a Scottish noble. He was, you know, the opposite of Darnley in many ways. He was older than Mary, more experienced, you know, very Scottish. Um, but like Darnley, he was quite ill-suited for the throne. And so they technically remained married for the rest of Bothwell's life, but um, they were only together in person for a few months as uh, Mary was forced to abdicate the throne and flee to England where she spent the rest of her life in captivity. So that's not not a very snappy summary, but that's sort of the brief overview. That's a brilliant overview and thank you for providing it. Why do you think Mary married Lord Darnley? I think to understand why Mary married Darnley, you have to look at the broader context of what she was looking for in a husband. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Queen Regnans faced a lot of challenges when searching for a husband. Um, you had to either marry a foreign prince, and that could form an alliance that would help your country in times of need. But it also could mean that you would get pulled into foreign conflicts that wouldn't actually, you know, benefit your country. And at the same time, um, this would mean an outsider could sort of come into the country and, you know, a lot of the nobles would view it as an outsider coming in and seizing control. Um, that's something that Mary I of England, Elizabeth's older sister, experienced um, because she married Philip II of Spain and you know, the English court was just very unhappy with the match because they felt like a Spanish, you know, prince was coming in and, you know, sort of asserting his his power over them. So marrying a prince was one option. The other one was marrying a Scottish subject. But that sort of raised the risk of angering the nobles who weren't chosen in the sense that uh, she would be elevating one of them above the others. And they were already, you know, very prone to factionalism and infighting. And also, I think when you have a subject as your husband, it's a bit tricky because, you know, during the 16th century, 
the husband was viewed as very much, you know, the, the, the ruler of his wife and in charge, like the Lord and master of his wife. But as queen, she was also his ruler. So there's a sort of difficult power balance that you're coming at. And, you know, that's something that we see a lot with, with Mary and Darnley. So essentially Mary, you know, when she starts looking for a husband, she considers a range of options, including a marriage with Don Carlos, who is the heir apparent of Philip of Spain. Um, and also, actually, someone who Elizabeth proposes is Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester. And uh, Dudley is actually Elizabeth's rumored lover and sort of, you know, accepted as the, the great love of her life. And so Elizabeth proposed him as a match for Mary. And it was kind of this odd situation where Mary herself, you know, could have been very excited at the prospect of marrying her her cousin's rumored lover. And also he happened to be the son and grandson of traitors who'd been beheaded by, um, you know, Tudor kings. So that match actually, though, did not end up working out, you know, possibly because Elizabeth couldn't bear to, to let Dudley actually go and um, marry Mary. <laughs> so then comes along Darnley, who Mary, you know, had met previously, but he receives permission from Elizabeth to travel to Scotland. And I think Antonia Fraser, she wrote sort of one of the first more sympathetic biographies of Mary, I would say. And she calls his arrival in Scotland, a kind of Trojan horse that was concocted by Dudley and Elizabeth's top advisor, William Cecil. You know, on the surface, he was very much this appealing match. He was described as being attractive in a very delicate, effeminate way. He was taller than this queen who, and Mary was, you know, about five foot 11. So she was very tall and most men and women of the day were quite a bit shorter than her. Um, So, you know, he appeared outwardly cultured. He was healthy, strong, you know, had that passion for um, outdoor activities, hunting and hawking. Uh, So Antonia Fraser suggests that Mary fell in love with Darnley when he fell ill and she nursed him back to health. So she sort of possibly had like these maternal instincts toward him. But at the same time, you know, she was very physically attracted to him, given that she'd had years of celibacy, you know, after um, the death of Francis uh, of France. So um, another thing that really helps with Darnley, um, at least in Mary's eyes, is that, you know, he has this claim to the English throne, as mentioned. His mother, Margaret Douglas, was the daughter of Margaret Tudor, who is Henry VIII's sister. Um, and so he has his own claim to the English throne. And by marrying him, that would strengthen Mary's own claim to the throne. But actually, it turned out this was one of the major reasons that Elizabeth, in turn, objected to the marriage, um, sort of, I guess, to, to rewind a little bit. But Elizabeth, you know, famously is this virgin queen who never got married and therefore did not have an heir, you know, of her own body. And so one of the things that she said to um, a courtier was, princes cannot like their own children. Thank you that I could love my own winding sheet, or sort of that means like a burial shroud. Um, so, you know, in, in Elizabeth's mindset, having an heir to the throne was not something that would sort of strengthen her reign. It was very much a threat. So even though, you know, she or perhaps Cecil and Dudley had sort of served up Darnley as this perfect husband for Mary, when it actually came time for the two to marry, Elizabeth essentially said, no, that's not going to happen. But but at this point, Mary was already so in love or in lust with Darnley that she went forward with the marriage at the risk of really... Um, attracting Elizabeth's ire and, you know, therefore not being named as her heir. So basically, Darnley supposedly was just bait 
Yeah. By Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort of setting Mary up in the position where she would fall for this attractive man, but in doing so, she would sort of doom herself because, you know, he was going to be a very poor consort and um, he would also, you know, be someone who would anger Elizabeth if proposed as, you know, the, the future king of Scotland. So um, I thought the Trojan horse description was a really apt one showing sort of the circumstances that really trapped Mary into this marriage. That That is a very good analogy. What was Elizabeth's influence after they did marry? So Elizabeth, she, you know, she expressed her very strong disapproval. And so relations between Elizabeth and Mary were pretty tense for a while, but they calmed down a bit, you know, when Mary gave birth to her son, um, James VI and first of Scotland. And, you know, so Mary had been six months pregnant when Rizia was murdered. And, you know, after that horrific incident, Elizabeth too, had, her, you know, had started softening toward Mary, I would say. So by the time James is born, I th- you know, like the relationships have improved enough that Mary names Elizabeth, you know, like a godmother to to her child. And so things seem to be improving. And then, of course, Darnley himself is killed. And from there, things really just kind of go go south for, <laughs> for some time. Uh, very well put. So why do you believe the match with Darnley was doomed? So there's a really great quote from um, Cecil, Elizabeth's advisor, about actually you know, her rumored lover, Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, and his wife, Amy Robsart. And it was, carnal marriages begin with happiness and end in strife. Um, and I think that applies really well to the match with Darnley, partly because, you know, um, as we've discussed, a lot of what attracted Mary to Darnley was, you know, the physical aspect of the relationship. But this infatuation, you know, which had driven her to marry against, you know, her her powerful cousin's will, it quickly gave way to revulsion over Darnley's character. You know, he had no real interest in the work of governing. He was arrogant, immature. You know, he he picked fights. He was a frequent guest at brothels and alehouses. Um, one observer at the time called him proud, disdainful, and suspicious. And so, you know, a major sticking point between them was the crown matrimonial again, you know, which would have placed them more on equal footing. Mary steadfastly refused to grant it to Darnley. And so that was really just something that kept them on, you know, very opposite sides. And so, you know, Darnley had few fans among Scotland's nobility, both due to his personal flaws and kind of his his politics. He was ostensibly a Catholic like Mary, but in private, his his religious inclinations were kind of fluid. He didn't feel super strongly about Catholicism or Protestantism. And, you know, he was very much raised in the English court and so wasn't, you know, an English noble more so than Scottish. So when he comes in and, you know, the Scots have their own very, I guess, uh, you know, what they're looking for in a concert. And he's not not that. So, you know, he has few fans among Scotland's nobility. And then when Mary, too, starts to look for ways to end the relationship, you know, that's when things really go downhill for Darnley. He's killed when he's, you know, 20 or 21 and sort of it's a very ignominious end for someone who had lived in also a kind of (laughs) untoward way, I guess. Definitely one of history's characters, that's for sure. Yes. Um, Let's get back to the murder of Rizzio. How did Mary's relationship with him affect her marriage with Darnley? Yeah, so Rizzio was Mary's private secretary. He was uh, an Italian by birth and he was essentially... Mary's confidant as, you know, relations with Darnley worsen, Mary would turn to Rizzio for comfort. And so 
there were rumors, you know, at court that Mary and Rizzio were actually having an affair. You know, some even suggested that Rizzio was the father of James, um, James the sixth and first. But, you know, those rumors were most likely or almost definitely unfounded. But Darnley being very impressionable, you know, he he started taking these rumors for granted and he got embroiled in this conspiracy led by Scottish nobles that wanted to take Rizzio away and, you know, remove him as an influence on the queen. And so, you know, in that very dramatic incident, you know, Darnley and these other nobles come into the room. Um, one of them holds a gun on Mary. You know, at this point, she's six months pregnant and it's a just a really horrifying situation for her. And, you know, she's lucky that she didn't end up miscarrying or something like that. So the the murder, you know, it just really changes things for, for Mary and Darnley. But interestingly enough, right after it happens, Mary sort of rallies and she convinces Darnley, you know, sort of back on her side um, by, you know, saying, we're in danger. These Scottish nobles who just killed Rizzio are going to try to to kill us. You're so far thrown. So she and um, Darnley actually managed to escape from those nobles and, um, you know, sort of rally their own support and then come back and seize power in this really triumphant way. And I think that was, you know, probably one of Mary's most triumphant moments, like during her reign. But after the murder of Rizzio, privately at least, or, you know, inwardly, Mary is is no longer at all very attached to Darnley. She, you know, she has it in for him. But, you know, and I, I yeah, and I guess we'll get into this more when we talk about Darnley's death. But um, she, I would say she had it in for him, but I don't personally think she was involved in his murder. So, Well, we touched on Darnley. Let's talk about him a little bit more, if you don't mind. Um, why did she settle on him as her second husband? She knew how much was at stake. Why Darnley? Well, besides the lust factor. <laughs> right. <laughs> that can always work wonders. <laughs> I think the, the lust was definitely a really big part of it, um, you know, and I think it also helped for sure that he had this this claim to the English throne because so much of Mary's relationship with Elizabeth was Mary, you know, essentially begging Elizabeth to make her, her heir or when Elizabeth was, you know, being really difficult refusing that Mary would claim like well I'm I'm the queen of England like I have the right to this throne um so you know by marrying Darnley she was really strengthening this claim and I think it was just you know the the factors that we talked about he was very physically attractive he you know was taller than her at a time when most people were not they had a lot of the same interests he came off as very you know cultured and, and put together and it was only I think as she really got to know him and sort of fell out of the infatuation part of their relationship that she started to see who he truly was rather than kind of this idealized image that she had of him. That's very well put. And this is just an off-the-wall question. Do you believe that because his father was Scottish that Mary thought that might help her out politically in Scotland? Yeah, I think that um, definitely could have been a factor. Although, um, you know, <laughs> on my understanding was that Lennox was not a particularly popular Scottish noble. So I'm not sure how much that would have helped. And, you know, he also was Catholic when most of these Scottish nobles were Protestant. So I think they had a lot of reasons to dislike Darnley, aside from the fact, you know, of his personality and the fact that he'd been raised in England and therefore, you know, was basically more of an Englishman than a Scotsman. Yeah, Darnley was just, he just really enchanted Mary, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, 
she really didn't have a chance once she saw him, did she? Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. And just, you know, when you when you fall in love with someone like that and it's hard to, <laughs> to see their flaws and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, All Things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. So essentially, Darnley is suffering from what was said to be smallpox, but was probably syphilis. And so he's, you know, um, recovering and he's in his sick bed. And at the time, Mary and Darnley had had a son and it seemed like maybe possibly they might be reconciling. So they end up convalescing at this place called Kirkofield, just outside of Edinburgh. Mary visits him and then she leaves and it's uh, the night of February 10th, 1567. And after she leaves, there's a gunpowder explosion. Um, you know, her and Mary can hear it at her, you know, castle miles away. It's um, incredibly loud. And so Darnley is found in the garden, but he was strangled and he rather than killed by the explosion. And so from the beginning, it was considered extremely suspicious. I mean, people didn't think that the, the gunpowder explosion was an accident, but then to, you know, know that Darnley hadn't even died in the explosion, but rather, you know, as he was trying to escape the explosion, really just pointed to a conspiracy in that that Darnley had been murdered. So Mary, you know, her initial reaction was um, that she had been the target of this conspiracy and that she had only narrowly escaped death by leaving Kirkofield, you know, the, the, that night before. She wrote, actually, that the matter is so horrible and strange as we believe the like was never heard in any country. But as more of these facts sort of came to light and, you know, there were sightings of Bothwell's servants at Kirkofield when when this was all happening, um, Mary, you know, very quickly realized that this was not something that had been targeting her and was very much targeting Darnley. Uh, to rewind a little bit, she had met with Scottish nobles, including Bothwell, who was by then, you know, serving as a strong source of support for her. Um, And she had given them kind of blanket permission to look into the issue of how to end the marriage between herself and Darnley. And so she didn't say, go ahead and murder him. She never, you know, officially signed anything like that. But she, she did have some role in sort of this eventual downfall of Darnley. Um, But I, you know, I wouldn't say like personally, she is extremely culpable in the way that Bothwell, who very much led the charge and um, arranged the murder was. And so Bothwell, you know, his name actually came up very soon um, after the news of the explosion broke out. And so he was accused of the murder and then actually acquitted, though, in a very legally suspect trial that was kind of rushed through. And public opinion was just very, very much not in his favor. So when Mary turns around and marries Bothwell, that is just something that completely, you know, shocks the Scottish public, shocks the nobles. And that's sort of a point of no return for her where she really loses her people's love. And, um, you know, it's just that decision is one that very much dooms her reign. 
So when did Bothwell come to Mary's attention? Uh, Mary had known Bothwell um, for, for a few years. You know, he was one of Scotland's leading noblemen. So, so Mary said that it was after his trial, you know, after he was acquitted, he sort of said that she needed a husband. He was the best man to, to you know, fulfill the role and said that he had the approval of Scotland's nobles. So I would say, you know, initially she viewed him more as kind of a source of support, a trusted advisor, a protector. Um, but then, you know, as as her situation worsened, there, there are sort of a num- number of factors that drive her toward Bothwell. Um, and so about Bothwell in general, he was, you know, like I said, older than Mary. He, unlike Darnley, was, was quite a bit shorter than her. He was about five foot six to her five foot eleven. He was described as someone with a very violent temper. He was involved in, you know, a lot of violent fights, um, but he was well-educated, well-traveled. He had a reputation for being, you know, an adventurer. Uh, he was also, though, very boastful, suspicious, a kind of opportunist with a strong desire for power. Um, in the words of one ambassador, he was a vainglorious, rash, and hazardous young man. Um, so essentially what happens is Mary is you know, riding with her attendings and Bothwell comes up and abducts her. And abducts is the word that's often used, but it's a bit unclear sort of whether Mary gave him permission to abduct her or at least had knowledge of sort of this plot. But either way, she did not protest when he said, you need to come with me to my castle, essentially. Um, and so, you know, put up very little resistance in a in a way that sort of has made later historians say, well, she probably had some role in this quote unquote abduction. But what she did not, definitely did not want was when Bothwell takes her to his castle in Dunbar, he he actually rapes her to place her in a position where she couldn't escape marrying him without sort of impugning on her honor. And this was something that was fairly well known among the court. Um, one, one observer wrote, the queen could not but marry him, seeing he had ravished her and lain with her against her will. So their marriage really starts with this incredibly brutal rape and, you know, violation of um, Mary's body. She wrote actually later, we found his doings rude, yet were his words and answers gentle. Um, So I think Bothwell is one where, you know, scholars, you know, before Antonia Fraser's and earlier would, would sort of say, oh, well, Mary was overcome by lust or she was, you know, totally in love with Bothwell. I don't think that is necessarily what was the case. I think she sort of viewed him more as someone who, again, like I'd said, she was looking for someone who could be uh, a source of support and equal to her as, you know, her her consort. And she viewed Bothwell as someone who was very capable. He had, you know, a lot of experience in politics and, you know, he, he seemed at first like someone who would be able to capably protect her. So it was more of a decision, I would say, that she made kind of with her, her head rather than her heart. And, you know, to suggest that she was, you know, deeply in love with him, it kind of, when you factor in the part that the reason that they got married is because he raped her, it's very, you know, kind of problematic, especially by today's standards. Um, But, you know, regardless of her motivations, her decision to marry Bothell really proves to be her downfall. And so, you know, she, she lost the love of her people, which was something that she had always relied on and perhaps taken a bit for granted, um, there were, you know, a ton of backlash. People were circulating pamphlets, you know, calling her an adulteress, a murderer. And, you know, the fact that she had married the man who had been accused of murdering her second husband really just solidified people's opinion, you know, that she had been involved directly in the murder of Darnley. Because, you know, why else would she marry the man who had been 
accused of murdering him. Absolutely. So if you could name three ways, how was he different than Darnley? So I think descriptions of Darnley sort of describe him as being very delicate and, you know, like having an an effeminate beauty is the word that I saw a lot in my research. Whereas Bothwell is sort of gruffer. He's very, very Scottish. He, you know, whereas, whereas Darnley is just kind of like a mama's boy, I guess. (laughs) He's immature, he even for his age, which was quite young. Um, Whereas Bothwell, he, you know, he was immature in his own ways. But Again, I think it's very much Mary had these surface perceptions of both of them. Like on the surface, both of them had their appeal and, you know, sort of seemed to offer things that Mary was looking for at the time. But yeah, Bothwell, despite, you know, having this um, seeming experience, he ends up, you know, making this disastrous series of decisions that ends up in um, Mary losing her throne. Um, so I'd say, yeah, well, <laughs> the height, he was, you know, quite a bit shorter. He just had a different kind of look. And he, oh, another major thing is that he was a Protestant. So when Mary married him, you know, she was very much going against her Catholic beliefs, which had always been such a strong part of her, her reign and her, her personality. So it was sort of, it marked a very definite shift in her approach to her religion, I'd guess. A short And as brief as it was, what was her relationship like with Bothwell? Their relationship, you know, like you said, it was was very brief. They get married in, I think, like May of 1567. And then by July, Mary has to, this has been forced to abdicate. But all accounts suggest that their relationship actually, you know, even in that short time, deteriorated very quickly because it's possible that that Bothwell admitted to Mary, you know, his role in, in the murder of Darnley, which, you know, maybe she had had a sense of, but didn't know the full, um, you know, the details of his involvement. But I think there was essentially in her early married life, there were reports that she was utterly miserable, felt that she had made the, the complete wrong choice, had sort of misjudged Bothwell from the beginning. And so it was just, you know, it was not, not a happy, not a happy time. And, you know, Mary later, miscarried twins, you know, who were, who were Bothwell's children. I have to tell you, this has been a great chat, and I would really just love for you to come back at any time. But until you return, where can we follow you on social media? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Malin Sully, just my name. And I also have a website, which is also my name, MalinSully.com. Those are the best places to reach me. You know, of course, you can also read Smithsonian Magazine. Um, I write about Tudor history quite regularly for them. Yeah. And I love your work. That's how I found you. So thanks again for being my guest. It has just been a pleasure having you on. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It was, a, it was great to, to chat with you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.